0: This morning, let's do it. Revelation, Revelation chapter 8. Now, if, if you're just new with this, jumping into this series in Revelation, you're gonna think like this is getting a little trippy. Uh, you know, what in the world was John smoking when he wrote this? It seems very strange. All right, just as we read through Revelation chapter 8 this morning, again, it's just more strange stuff. I just want to remind you from the get-go, this is apocalyptic literature. It's a kind of genre. You go to a library and there's different genres that are there. When you come to the Bible, it's a library of genres. There's poetry, there's letters that are being written, there's history, but there's also this apocalyptic literature that has these strange images to it. But these images are hyperlinks, if you will, that point us back to the Old Testament where some of these images are utilized throughout the story of Scripture. And so apocalyptic literature, it's kind of that dream vision genre. It's going to have these strange images that are going to point us, keep on pointing us back to the story of Scripture so that we can understand the meaning of the images. So this is not some strange code to crack. This is not... Uh, Conspiracy Theory 101, getting to the book of Revelation. That is a wrong use of the book of Revelation. Okay? Wrong use. Don't go there. Don't do that. That is how the enemy would want to confuse the glory of God's word. It should not lead you to conspiracy theories. It should lead you to see an incredible God who stands over all things from beginning to end and has victory over evil. This is what the book of Revelation is about. So, don't go conspiracy theory. Let's learn our Bibles. When we learn our Bibles, these things become quite clear to us. They don't strike fear within our hearts. They strike faith, faith in the risen Jesus who one day will make all things new. So let's jump into it. Revelation chapter 8. The visionary John writes once again, and he writes, verse 1, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to him And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So just kind of recap. So, you know, there's there's a seventh seal that is opened. There is silence in heaven. While there is silence, there's this backdrop activity happening. There are trumpets being given to angels. But then as that's happening, there's another angel who comes and has a golden censer. And he then takes that golden censer full of incense and with it the prayers of the saints and offers it over the altar raising the incense and the prayers before God. Verse 5, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire. So he's already poured it out. Now he's filling it with fire, with the coals from the altar. And he threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel, he blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise then a third of the night. That's verses 1 through 12. We'll save verse 13 for next week. Here's the point I want to raise before you. The prayers of God's people are praying powerful. The prayers of God's people are powerful. If I can use this language, it's the prayers of God's people that pull heaven down. The prayers of God's people, if you will, move the first mover, God. They ignite the sovereign purposes of God. The prayers of God's people, in some sense, in some way, Push the destiny of humanity forward according to God's sovereign purposes. The prayers of God's people are powerful. Psalm 107. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. God hears our prayers. Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Matthew 21, And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. Mark 9, And Jesus said to his disciples, This kind of demonic affliction cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Mark 11, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. John chapter 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Acts chapter 9, Peter put the people all outside the house, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise, and she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. James chapter 5, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And the prayers of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And with all of that, then scripture says, so pray without ceasing. Put on the armor of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 6. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. When you feel the enemy, go to prayer. Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything in the midst of fears and anxieties, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God in the peace of God which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Just in that brief summary of Scripture, you can't help but see the prayers of God's people are powerful. God's people, when they pray, is not some sort of religious Empty routine that I just get a few more notches on my belts to feel good about myself because I did something spiritual. Our prayers accomplish something, right? As we turn our attention to chapter 8, we find that one of the essential roles of the church, one of the essential roles of the church, in seeing God's plan for the ages realized. And seeing the destiny of humanity pushed forward, one of the essential roles of the church is prayer. As Oswald Chambers writes, he states this He says, Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer is powerful, right? So what is the work that our prayers would accomplish according to this text? The survey that I gave you, man, our prayers do a lot of stuff. But there is something specific that our prayers do, that the prayers of the saints accomplish in Revelation chapter 8. What does our prayer accomplish? First, this. Man's prayer... Powerfully works God's judgment. Hang on to that. Because that, that sounds kind of devastating. What are you talking about? Like, judgment is a bad kind of term for us in our day. In a day of tolerance, when everybody's right in their own eyes, according to their own feelings, don't tell me about judgment. But let's just listen in. What is this judgment? We'll talk through it a bit together. Man's prayer powerfully works God's judgment. As chapter 8 begins, we now return to the opening of the seventh seal. And remember, we've, we've seen the previous six seals. Again, all of this is apocalyptic imagery. You can't take this stuff too literally. It's like trying to grab a hold of a very slippery fish, the harder you squeeze it, it's gonna fly out of your hands. If you take apocalyptic literature and you squeeze it too hard and take it all too literally and try to take every piece of it and provide meaning to it, you'll lose the meaning of the text. So we have to be careful. But we've already seen the first six seals open. We've seen four horsemen, right? The images of this global unrest and tribulation depicting the very kinds of circumstances that we've seen in the last year or two. We've seen then martyrs under the altar. They've suffered unto death through that unrest and tribulation. And then finally, we've seen the day of the Lord arrive, this final day of judgment. And the grand question is, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? And then... Chapter 7, we have this intermission, if you will, this digression. Like we're going through all these seals, and all of a sudden, John stops and he begins to explain some things. Who can stand? Well, he explains that the church can stand, if you remember. The church, this spirit empowered, like military choir, right? They're a singing people who are armed with sacrificial love for others and actively ministering to the heart of their God. They are those who are being led by the Lamb, and they're being led safely home, where God will ultimately wipe every tear from their eyes. When no one else can stand before God, the church stands. So we've seen the six seals, we've seen this intermission, and now we're returning to the seventh seal. So in verse 1 of chapter 8, the seventh seal is broken. And there is this drastic shift of gear in the text, right? From the fanfare of chapter 7, singing community, this triumphant procession of the church, now to what is in chapter 8, this heavenly hush. Silence pervades heaven. It's this, if you will, deafening stillness some of us hate stillness, silence. But it's this silence that pervades heaven for half an hour. And the question is, well, why? What's the point of silence? Well, in the Old Testament, again, we got to go and interpret Scripture with Scripture. What's happening here? Well, let's look at Scripture. Silence precedes the coming of God's judgment throughout the Old Testament. So Isaiah 41 It states this, it states, Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together in the place of judgment. Zephaniah chapter 1, Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Silence precedes the coming of the Lord's judgment. But before we consider that judgment, don't fail to see the relevance here. While there is silence in heaven, this silence is probably anticipating a day of final judgment. But, What we see within Scripture is time and time again, through the story of redemption, God's people are called to stillness amidst tribulation. They are called to this place of faith-filled quietness, this faith-filled silence. So Exodus 14, 14, when God's people stand at the Red Sea, right? Moses says to the people, he says, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be still, silent. Psalm 46, a beautiful psalm. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of the hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Church, it's these very texts that when we go through significant tribulation, it calls us to this point of stillness, of silence. It's this faith-filled silence that we are to have, trusting the fact that God is working through our tribulation, he's working through our hardship, ultimately to bring about his sovereign purposes one day, ultimately to bring about that final day of judgment, which is not just getting the bad guy, but it's making sure that all of the things that have been broken in my experience in life are brought to final justice. Don't you want justice? Everyone is screaming for justice in this world. They want things to be right. Strangely enough, they all want it to be right in their own way, which only creates more conflict. And it's Jesus, then, who his way will stand in the end. (laughs) His way is going to stand, and he will bring everything to a final day of judgment, which will be a final day of justice, of vindication for all those who have stood silent in his presence, even amidst crazy tribulation. Too often, we do think that God's judgment is coming from someone who is just frustrated. He's unhinged. He's just angry. But it is vindication that Jesus is bringing to his people. He's coming to make right everything that has been wrong. Death one day, let's just say it, death one day will bow before him. Right? Our abuse, our abuse will find final healing before him. Right? Our wrongs will be revealed for what they truly are, paid by in the blood of the Lamb. All of this will be seen for what it truly is, bringing hope and healing finally to our hearts, such that it might be true, yes, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Silence in heaven right now is anticipating that judgment, that he will act in justice for the sake of his own name and for the good of his own people. But I'd propose this, getting to our point, The church can confidently stand in stillness, right? She can confidently join heaven in this moment of, you know, faith-filled silence when she has first done the work of prayer. This silence unto judgment or unto justice comes through the work of prayer. We can stand in silence before God when we've done the work of prayer, and why? Well. Because it's through prayer that God's judgment and justice is realized. Consider verse 3 of chapter 8. And another angel came and stood at the altar, this golden censer in his hand. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So if 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 that's confusing to you, you've got to have this heavenly picture, right? And here's this angel with the censer in his hand. And it's filled with incense, and it's filled then with the prayers of God's people. It's all imagery. And it's being tossed over the altar, and it's being burned up. And the incense, the prayers of the saints, are rising up before God. And it's from that point of the prayers coming up before God that God now comes to act. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth as the prayers arise before god god now is seemingly commissioning this angel to take coals from the altar and throw it on the earth to bring judgment upon the earth it's the prayers of god that have or the prayers of man that have gone out up that now bring down the judgment of God. Man's prayers are powerfully working God's judgment. The fire thrown down upon the earth is a picture of judgment. It's the prayers of the saints provoking God to action, provoking God to justice. Don't you all want that? Don't you want a perfect world? We all want it. And so this, the prayers of the saints rise up before God and provoke God to action. He acts because his people pray. God intends in his sovereign goodness to act upon the prayers of his people. So let me ask you just practically, what does your prayer life look like? Are you moving the heart of God? Here in context, prayer is certainly part of the warfare of God's people from chapter 6. It's why we pray, God, let your kingdom come. Bring your rule and reign to bear upon this earth. Bring hope and healing to this earth. That's part of our prayers. That's our warfare. We pray God's purposes down. We provoke him to action. Or Ephesians chapter 6, prayer is part of our armor. Going against the enemy? the one who brings temptation, the one who wants to confuse our minds, the one who wants our minds to be racing, the one who wants us emotionally to becoming all frazzled and undone, oh, it's to put on the armor of the Lord, one of the pieces being and one of the emphases given is prayer. Prayer is our warfare. It gets stuff done, and as we read, it's how demons are cast out. It's how disease and ailment is healed. It's also how then God's people endure when affliction remains, when disease is left unhealed, and when conflict remains. Philippians 4, when you're anxious, pray. And through the tribulation, the peace of God will rule your heart. It's how we go to war. We pray. But also from the text, prayer is arising from an altar, which means this. Prayer is a sacrifice. Prayer takes time. Prayer takes time. Social media, all the movie platforms that we have today will be the indictment of the church. God's people don't pray when there's so much to watch, (laughs) when there's so much to do, when there's so much communication to be had. What does your prayer life look like? Seriously, it it has to be a sacrifice. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes concentrated effort. I got to get away from my kids to pray. That means I got to do some planning. Jody and I got to do some working with one another. As a church, we need to think through some of those things as well. How do we we intentionally create time to come together as God's people and do this sacrifice, sacrifice of prayer in order to move the heart of God? God's purposes will sovereignly be accomplished, right? But once again, he is sovereignly ordained that he would move at the prayers of his people folks, when it comes to prayer, prayer powerfully works God's judgment. It is part of our warfare. It's how we get through this life, but it also must be an act of our sacrifice before him. It will take work. It'll take time. Is prayer a priority in your life? It might mean that you need to simplify some things in life to prioritize prayer. Prayer Is part of your warfare. Secondly, and we only got two points. So if you're like, oh man, I don't get this revelation stuff, you can just, yes, okay, only two points this morning. Secondly, man's prayer powerfully works God's judgment. Catch the wording here, it's important. But God's judgment mercifully works man's repentance. Catch that? All right. God's judgment mercifully works man's repentance. What does this mean? How's it seen from the text? Well, when the seventh seal is broken in verse one in the silence, there's this background activity. You know, the, these seven trumpets are handed to these seven angels. Right? So it's like the seventh seal is clearly describing something of a final day of judgment. Those thunders and rumblings and lightnings, it's, it's a reference to, oh, that's that final day, and you'll see it repeated again in, again, in, again in Scripture, that those are the descriptions of this final day of judgment. And so the seventh seal clearly describes this final day of judgment, but it's as if we are taken back to see either these same judgments. You remember the four horsemen? We may be being taken back to just kind of rehearse and see these same judgments from a different angle, or at least we're seeing a new pattern of judgments or a similar pattern of, of judgments just in a more intensified way. Does that make sense? So there's all kinds of debate on all of this stuff. Way too much ink has been spilled trying to figure out all of this stuff. I think when it comes down to it, though, we can take some very simple and practical applications, although it might be a confusing text. So what we begin to see then is these judgment trumpets come to the forefront of God's purposes and plan. And again, notice, whether it's the final day of judgment or all these layers of judgment, at heart, the prayers of God's people are provoking it. The prayers of God's people are moving God's purposes forward, but again, God's judgments are not only ultimately to vindicate God's people one day, but to prove that all other solutions and saviors to this life are empty. The judgment that our prayers provoke are intended in other words to lead people to repentance Amen. let me just explain a little bit more there's there's a lot there when we see the judgment of God in the book of Revelation ju- the judgments of God are intended to come upon the world in such a way that all the things that you take ultimate hope in all the things that I take ultimate hope in all those false saviors would actually be proven for what they are, just dust in the wind, empty hopes and dreams that can never truly satisfy the depth of my heart. So when God brings this tribulation, the four horsemen and what we'll see, these first four trumpets, it's intended to actually be pointed out, the false hopes of your life. They can't stand up under this tribulation. They can't stand up under the pressures. What has COVID demonstrated to us? Well, politics ain't going to solve the day. You haven't figured that out yet. right? Politics ain't going to solve the day. Perfect science isn't going to solve the day. right? All these other things, well, if I just have a fat stash of money you know, in the bank account and we can lean on that and everything will be, be okay, as COVID has demonstrated, it takes one little pandemic, one little thread of, 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 of disease or whatever to wreak havoc upon the earth. Your bank account ain't, ain't, ain't going to help you or get you through tribulation. Right? All of these things are, cannot be ultimate hopes and saviors for us. When tribulation comes, they're seen for what they truly are, empty. And that's the idea here. God's judgment is intended to expose the false saviors that all of us run to. And so what we come to find as we turn to these four trumpets in verses 6 and following is that they mimic the plagues of Egypt. Remember going all the way back to Egypt? And, and, and just before we look just briefly at this, I'm going to summarize these final verses. And so some of you are like, oh, thank goodness. Uh, as we summarize that, I want you to keep in mind the Exodus story. The plagues that came upon Egypt, God brought those plagues upon Egypt. Why? It wasn't just to set his people free. It was actually to come face to face with the lesser gods of Egypt and prove that they are not in power. And that they cannot satisfy the Egyptians. What God was doing in bringing the plagues upon the Egyptians was actually calling them to repent calling them to him, come follow Yahweh God. Go with the people of God. It was the whole point of the judgments of these plagues. It was so that they would turn from their false saviors and go after Yahweh God. Therefore, as we see the tribulation of Revelation that mimics the Exodus account, God's judgment is coming upon the world and it has come upon the world. Why? Why? once again so it would expose the false saviors that we're all trying to lean on and ultimately then look to jesus as the one who is already overcome and who promises to lead us safely home this is the point of god's judgment to bring people to repentance so how does these four judgments in verse 6 and following kind of mimic the exodus story i'm just going to summarize it briefly In trumpet number one, which is verse verse six and following, hail and fire mixed with blood are cast upon the earth, and a third of the earth is burned up. In Exodus chapter nine, verse 24, there was hail and fire flashing continually such as never had been seen in the land. The hail struck down every plant and tree. See the connection. In verse 8, we see Trumpet 2, a great burning mountain, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood and killed a third of the creatures. In Exodus chapter 7, we know that the water of the Nile is turned into blood, and a third of the creatures die. And the Nile, they say, stank. In verse 10 of Revelation 8, Trumpet 3, a great star named Wormwood is uh, cast to the earth, and it makes a third of the water undrinkable. Well, once again, what we have in Exodus chapter 7 is the same thing. The Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. Verse 12, trumpet 4, we have a sun, moon, and stars are darkened, and the third of the day was taken. Well, Exodus chapter 10, so Moses stretched out his hand toward the heaven, and there was pitch darkness in the land of Egypt for... Three days. Do you see the similarities? These are not just like biblical scholars trying to like grab a hold of the smallest little things that might refer to the book of Revelation. These are explicit kind of allusions back to the Exodus story. And so, again, it's here to point out the fact. And let's begin here. How did The Exodus begin you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 2 by the cries of God's people he hears them God hears our prayers folks he hears our cries our prayers move our God that's how the Exodus story actually began by the cries of God's people and God hears them, and he brings judgment upon Egypt by the prayers of his people. It was through judgment that God intended to save his people. This is the power of our prayers. Our prayers elicit the judgment of God, but notice as well in the Exodus story, God was confronting those gods of Egypt. He was exposing the false gods for what they really were, empty and powerless. You can look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. God is pointing right at the gods of Egypt saying they cannot satisfy. And why would God do that? Once again, so that all of Egypt would repent, turn from their false saviors and follow Yahweh God. These plagues, these judgments were to work Man's repentance. So this text refers to that Exodus account. God's intention to see Egypt repent. But furthermore, in Revelation chapter 8, we see that God limits his judgment to one-third. One-third is mentioned 13 times in this short text. And why? What's the emphasis? Why why is John saying it 13 times? Like, who cares? you said it number of times already why say it again why emphasize this because god is mercifully limiting his judgment he isn't bringing things to a final day yet which means he's mercifully allowing people the opportunity to turn to him in repentance and be saved do you see He is intentionally, and we can go to other texts, he has intentionally given up the world to its futility, its vanity, part of his judgment. It's just saying, oh, you want what you want, world? Go after it. See. See what kind of life it gives you. See what kind of stability it gives you. See what kind of peace it gives you. And as, as people in this world run after all the things that this world affords, they find it actually destructive. It takes away from the humanity that God has designed us with. It breaks down this world order when God is pushed out of the center of it. And God says, see if you can do life on your own. That's part of his judgment. So that, once again, God's people turn to him and repent and go after him. The fact that this is only a third of destruction upon the earth is actually God's incredible Mercy, giving people the opportunity to turn from him. Now, maybe one of the parables in Scripture, just briefly, to, to help you understand this, is the wise man and the foolish man. You know, they're building their houses. right? And so what does the foolish man do? He builds his house on what? Sand. What happens next? Storms of life come. Tribulation come. We could even say it this way, judgment is unleashed. The storms come. How does that go for the foolish man? Things go well for him? No. The things that he built his life on are actually proven to be what they truly are, just sinking sand. And the text will say from Jesus' own lips, and that man's end was great destruction. Great destruction is actually the very same language that is used to describe the final day of God's judgment. What Jesus is depicting and seeing the storms of life come upon this foolish man is to expose the fact that the things that he actually sought significance, worth, and meaning in in this life could not actually sustain him through the storms of life. God brings judgment to expose the lesser gods that we build our life upon ultimately to say they're nothing. They can't bring you through the tribulation. Your end will be ultimate judgment before Jesus. So what is the what is the other answer that he he gives us? He says build your life upon the rock, right? Build your life upon that which yes, the storms of life will come. You'll feel it. You'll feel loss, you'll feel brokenness, you'll feel abuse, you'll feel all the hardship. You'll feel the storms of life. But there is one, there is one who can actually bring you through the storm of life. There is only one who can sustain your life through that kind of tribulation. And Jesus is saying, it's me. I am the rock. I am the one who can be for you your worth your purpose, and significance in this life. Don't rest on anything else, but rest in him, right? Because ultimately what Jesus has done, he's gone through the judgment waters for us, right? He's endured the storms of life, ultimately going to that cross, suffering the greatest storm of life, namely death itself, and he overcame it. And now through the tribulation that we experience in this life, It's the opportunity that folks are given to say, man, the stuff in this life cannot bring satisfaction to my, it can't bring me through. I must find another. And scripture is clear. If you seek God with all your heart, you will find him. He's actually not too far from you. (laughs) He's one that we can go to. He's one that we can truly trust in. And he's one that will Bring God's people through these judgment waters. All to say this, for the Christian, let Jesus have a place in your pain. Rest your pains upon him. There is nothing else in this world, even as the disciple says, where else can we go? You have the words of life everything else is sinking sand and so we take even our pains the things that we hold in some sense so close to so close to the chest and we build up the defenses around our life we don't want that pain provoked anymore and Jesus says there's rest for your soul to bring that pain to me to rest it upon me so take your pain Place it before him. And you will find that he is not just an empty solution or an empty savior, but one who can actually bring you home. God's judgment over time is to mercifully work man's repentance. So get then the big picture of what we've just been talking about. Right? Man's prayer powerfully works God's judgment, and God's judgment mercifully works man's repentance. It's one way that God acts to see people turn to him. And in the midst, then, of this dynamic, well, for us as Christians, prayer is our warfare. Prayer is our sacrifice. It's not that which fits us for greater works of activity It is the greater work. It puts into motion the purposes of God. It is the power of prayer. If you've never made, then, a decision to follow Jesus, he's bidding you come. All the false saviors that you've sought after, the things that you place your significance and worth in, they may not even be bad things. They may just be like, you, you seek your significance and worth in being a, a, a husband or a wife or a mother or, or a father. It might be, you know, you know, always working up and I need to have a job that gives significance to me. All those things are, are, are empty ultimately. They're not bad things, they're good things. They just can't give you the necessary significance and worth that you were truly made for. Only Jesus can do that and he's made it possible for you to know him. He's lived for you, he's died for you, he's been raised for you so that you can freely come to him. There's nothing you have to do in order to gain his approval. He's done everything so that you can come freely to him and receive life in his name. So whether you're here or you're online listening, I'd encourage you, come to Jesus. Come and know the one who can be footing for your feet, a true rock, the one who alone can carry you through judgment waters. But I want to end for us here, for those who you say, I know this Jesus, yeah, I feel the storms of life. I know that footing for my feet. I know that Jesus has come and he's done for me what I could never do for myself. He has satisfied my heart. He's cleansed me of my errors. He's provided forgiveness. He covers my shame. He works for me through this life. For those of you who say that that's me, I wanna end our time together by participating in communion together. So I'm gonna ask the musicians to go ahead and come forward. And once again, is there coming forward, um, may, maybe communion is a weird thing for you, like uh, maybe it's familiar in other religious arenas. Uh, when we come and we take of the elements here, the elements on one hand symbolizes the slain lamb who stands, right? He stands and stands alive, right? Reigning and ruling over all things. This represents he has died, right? But he stands. He is the conquering lamb of God. And he has conquered the judgment that we deserve. He has conquered the greatest storm of life, death, which we will all go through. And we must have that Savior to carry us through that greatest storm of life. And so what these elements point to is Jesus. It's it's who he is. It's what he's done. But know this. We got to get this past our little Baptist noggins. Is that in taking these elements, it is not merely a symbol or a reminder. Jesus doesn't just say, oh, yeah, you know what? Uh, it, it'd be a good thing to just remember me. He does call us to remembrance, right? But he also promises grace to be received in these moments. He promises, as we symbolically take these things into us, he, he, he promises something of his own grace, his own presence to us. Don't we need that through the tribulations that we go through? You know? Don't we need that as people called to prayer? Right. We're, we're a people who need... Jesus. We need his grace. We need his presence as the one who ultimately leads us through. He's the shepherd of our souls. So let's go ahead and stand. Uh, If you know Jesus, if you know Jesus, you've come to faith in him, this is for you to come and take of these elements and receive him. If you've never come to know Jesus, I'd encourage you to sit there and receive him as he is. All right? But let's come on, grab the elements. And we'll take those elements together. I want to end by declaring a verse over us as we take these elements. So that clear piece, you can pull back. All right, Russ. <laughs> I was just talking myself through it. <laughs> I figured I'd help out if you, if you need it. So you take that clear piece, pull that back, and you'll get the wafer from it. And then the tab itself is what you pull back, and you get the juice. All right. So as you've prepared that, I felt led, as I was studying, to go back to Acts chapter 4 and actually read the prayer of the disciples who say, God, give us boldness. Give us boldness to proclaim your name. Even amidst incredible persecutions and hardships and tribulations, God, grant us your grace, grant us your presence to boldly go from this place, if you will, and to live well and speak well for Jesus' name, right? So let me read it, and together we'll take the elements. They cry, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, they say, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both. Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had destined to take place. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue, here it is, to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Amidst tribulation, amidst difficulty in this life, let's be a praying people, but let's also be a people who through that tribulation speak well of Jesus. Let's take it together. God, we thank you for your incredible grace to us. What mercy you have shown us. You have powerfully worked mercy on our behalf through your Son. And so, Jesus, we honor you. Father, we love you. And Holy Spirit, I pray that even as we sing this final song, jump into the benediction and our week continues, Lord, would it be that your grace would rest upon us, that we would be a praying people, To see your mercy brought to many more. That their hearts would be turned and trust in you. So give us your presence. Give us your grace to that end. Make us bold witnesses, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Ten can, break. But yeah, We'll take a 10-minute break and then come right back. So please don't miss it. If you have any interest at all in the future and the life of this church, please come. Yeah. I'm serious. Come. <laughs> <laughs> all right. well, that being said, I want to read from First Peter chapter 5. He writes, After you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm,